Open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter 9. Jorge's title is the Discipleship Minister of the Sunday Morning Gatherings. Has anyone ever used that title with you? Actually, okay. But when I pray for Jorge in the morning and the music team up here, I think of that because uh, discipleship is his job. It's what he does, and he's discipling us, and I appreciate Jorge and the team up here discipling us through song, through scripture reading, and in the ministry of the word in that way. Daniel chapter 9. Well, night was falling over the harbor of Bristol, England. George Mueller and his wife were getting ready to put the kids to bed. They had a hundred orphans in their orphanage. And George went to his study and began to take out some papers and do some bills and some other things. And his wife came in the room and she says, George, we don't have enough milk for the children tomorrow for breakfast. We have the oatmeal, we have some other things, but the children aren't going to be able to eat their breakfast tomorrow. And so George laid his pen down and he reached out for his wife's hand and he grabbed her hand and said, Mary... Let's pray. And so George and Mary invited two other orphanage employees to come in and they gathered around and they prayed that God would provide for them so they could have milk for the children the next day. And when they finished praying, there was a knock on the door. And Mary went and answered the door. She came back into the room where George and the two other employees were and she put the letter on the desk there and George opened it up and it was a letter and had money in it and it was just enough money for them to be able to get milk the next day for the children. Now when you hear about sermons that we're going to talk about this morning like praying for God to give us, for God to answer our requests, many times we think of people like George Mueller. The title of my sermon today is Biblical Prayers That God answers. We think of people like George Mueller. Maybe you think of people like uh, a believer like Hannah in 1 Samuel where she prays for a baby and God gives her that answer. Maybe you think about men like Elijah who prayed for rain. Maybe you think about the early church who prayed for Peter when he was in prison that God would save his life. Or maybe you think of men like Daniel. Maybe in Daniel chapter 2 where he gathered his friends and asked God to, to reveal to them the, the interpretation for the dream. Or maybe you think of Daniel chapter 6 where Daniel, we see that Daniel prayed as, as a habit three times a day and he was threatened that if he prayed again that he would lose his life but yet he still prayed. And all of those men and women prayed and they saw God answer their request. And maybe you thought to yourself, like, what are the type of prayers that God answers? Like, how can I pray in such a way that I can, I can pray like George Mueller and like Elijah and Hannah? And how can I have my prayers answered by God? So we're, what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at biblical prayers that God answers. In our text Daniel chapter 9, the year is 538 B.C. This is actually the same year as Daniel chapter 6. So when Daniel went to the lion's den, that's the same year. Daniel is in his 80s. What was on Daniel's mind? As he goes 
into prayer here in Daniel chapter 9, what was on his mind? Well, he longed for the restoration of God's temple in Jerusalem. He longed for the restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. But most importantly, he desired the restoration of God's relationship with his people. And here's what's remarkable about this text. That Daniel prays for those things right there and God answers them. In fact, we're going to see today that God answered his prayers in two ways. Number one, after this prayer, God used the Persian king, King Cyrus, to allow the Jews to go back to the land of Israel and even to fund the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So God answered that request. And next week, we're going to look at how God answered the second request, and that is in Daniel 9, 20 through 26. Gabriel, Gabriel, the angel, revealed to Daniel that the Messiah would come in 483 years and provide spiritual restoration to, for the sins of Israel, but also the sins of all those who come to Christ. So what's amazing here is that God uses the prayer of Daniel to bless Israel, but what we're going to see today is God actually used his prayer to bless us. Prayer is God's, one of God's means to fulfill his purposes on this earth. So God restored the Jewish people back to their land and he gave them the hope of spiritual restoration through the Messiah. So those are pretty, two pretty remarkable answers to prayer. Look down in Daniel chapter 1. Instead of reading through the entire text, we're just going to walk through the text together. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1, Daniel 9 1. The Bible says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azuharis, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, so this is a testimony of Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Let's stop right there. Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah and he noticed, at least in two chapters, chapter 25 and chapter 29, that God had promised that in 70 years from the start of judgment that he would restore the Jewish people back to their land. In fact, do this with me. Let's go over to Jeremiah 29. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but let's look at this again to put this back on our minds. Remember that this is what Daniel was reading before he went into this prayer. Daniel did the math. It was almost 70 years ago that he was taken captive. Daniel, God had promised that he would restore them, but God says here that one of the conditions to that is that they must Pray. Look at Jeremiah 29. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, speaking of Israel and the Jewish people, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And how 
would God accomplish this, verse 12, then you will call upon me, that's prayer, and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And here's the answer to prayer. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now that's a pretty alarming promise by God there, especially when you are in another country far away. It's been almost 70 years since you were brought into exile. But Daniel read that and he believed that. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. God promised the Jewish people that he would restore them to the land. But that would be only after they prayed. God revealed his plan to the Jewish people. Here's my plan. 70 years, you will come back. And then decreed that their prayers would be a part of his plan to do his will. Think about that. God revealed his plan, then decreed that their prayers would be a part of his plan to do his will. Prayer is one of the means God uses to accomplish his earthly purposes. In other words, God uses the prayers of his people to fulfill his decrees. Isn't that amazing to think about? So what type of prayer is that? You're like, well, give me that kind of prayer. I want to be a part of that. What kind of prayer is that? So we're going to look at a biblical prayer from Daniel chapter 9 today. This is what we're going to see. But I believe from Daniel 9, we can perceive what a biblical prayer looks like. Prayer is humbly entering the presence of God and the confidence of the Lord's name, responding in agreement with who God is and who we are, that's confession, and responding through faith in his word, that's petition, being motivated by the glory of God. So we're going to look at five parts of a biblical prayer this morning. First, notice the, the attitude of prayer, the attitude of prayer. Prayer is humbly entering into the presence of God. Look at verse 3. The scripture says, Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God. Literally, Daniel set his face on the Lord God. Daniel put his full attention upon God in prayer. In other words, Daniel removed distractions. He fixated his mind upon the Lord. He put himself in an environment of humility. We can see that he, he fasted. Daniel believed, this is remarkable to think about, Daniel believed that he was entering into the presence of God and he was able to talk to God face to face. Now think about that. I turned my face to the Lord. Where did Daniel get an idea like that from? Well, there's a lot of texts we could go through, but just listen to this one. 2 Chronicles 7.14, God says, after the, the building of the first temple to Solomon, God says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, so there's this humility, and pray, and here's the next part, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So here you have 
I believe Daniel taking a scripture like this and believing that he can actually meet face to face with God. And notice the, the attitude there. It's this attitude of humility. We are to come humbly considering the reality that we are in the very presence of God. Look at verse 3. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him. That's the point of prayer. We're seeking the Lord by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And this attitude of, import, of prayer is so important for us to have when we go to the Lord in prayer. And yes, it's good for us to pray before our meals and ask God to bless our meal and thank him for that. It's good to pray throughout your entire day. You know, we should pray without ceasing. We should pray for grace and strength and pray for people as God puts them on our mind. But it's also very important to have times of concentrated prayer and personal brokenness to meet with the holy God. So I guess I would ask this question to you, Christian. When do you do that? When is the last time you've done that? When do you have that time with God where you remove distractions? You know, your cell phone's not right in front of you. You're praying and going, oh, what's the next thing that's happening? But you remove distractions and you meet with God, setting your full attention upon him, recognizing that you are in the presence of the holy God. Maybe you're a young person in here. Maybe for, for you that means closing your door and turning off all your devices, going next to your bed and just kneeling down next to your bed and having a time where you're going to meet with God. Maybe you're a mom in here and you're like, I do not get a time to myself at all. And it might be going to your husband and saying, can can you give me an hour, <laughs> maybe this week sometime, where I can just meet with God and not have any of the kids or anyone else bother me? Maybe you're busy with school or maybe a job and you just need to get up earlier. Maybe you start work at seven o'clock in the morning. So maybe you need to get up at four in the morning. And the point is we need to have these times where we set aside time to meet with God in prayer. So prayer is humbly entering the presence of God that's our attitude. What's the basis of prayer? It's in the confidence of the Lord's name. In the confidence of the Lord's name. Look at verse 4. He says, I pray to the Lord my God and make confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Throughout this prayer, Daniel presents the basis for his Prayer, and that is the name or the names of God. The name of God is the revelation of who God is. All of us, most all of us, have name tags on. In our Western society, our name basically is a, a label. You know, this is I'm Ben. You know, that's Norm, right? We, that's all it means. It means this is, this is kind of what you put on that person to say this is what you label them as. But when we use names for God, it's not just a label, it actually communicates who God is. God's names communicate his attributes. And also communicates the basis for prayer. And that's his character. That's his work. This fall, the ladies are going to be studying. Actually, next week. Is next week the 12th? Yeah, next week the ladies have a Bible study. And you guys are going to be going through the names of God. Dana's been studying. And I secretly want to come to that 
but I'm a male, so I'm not going to come. But honestly, if you're a lady in here, if you're a teenage girl in here, if you're a college student, you need to sign up for that. This might be one of the best Bible studies you've ever gone through. I think studying the names of God can, can change your life because you're understanding the attributes of God and actually can change your prayer life. So please sign up for that. It's in the back. You can do that. There's a little plug. Was that good? Okay. I didn't tell her I was going to do that. So, But seriously, that is such an important topic for us to understand. Notice, notice in verse, verses 3 and 4 the name of God used there. It's the name Lord. He uses that three times in those two verses. Twice in those verses, Daniel describes God as Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. See that in there? Twice. And the translators did the type like that on purpose. It was to identify that that's the Hebrew name for God, Adonai. That's the Hebrew name, Adonai. Adonai means master. It means supreme one. And then look down as well. You can see that he calls God the Lord, capital L, in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And he, the English translators did this to identify this as the Hebrew name for Yahweh. Now, why didn't they just say Yahweh and Adonai? I don't know. When you translate the Bible, you can change it for us, okay? Because that'd be so much more helpful. Yahweh is the covenant name for God. Yahweh is the personal name of God. This is the, the covenant name that he goes by. So for Daniel, he was a Jew. He believed that Yahweh was his covenant God, his covenant-keeping God. That means God loved him. God had promises to him and his people, and God would keep those promises. So in verse 4, he prayed that, that he prayed in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord. In fact, eight times in chapter 9, he addresses God as Yahweh, or all caps L-O-R-D. So look at verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord Yahweh. And if you remember, actually, in Jeremiah 29, the very beginning of that, in verse 10, he prays to Yahweh, the Lord, all caps Lord. He says, I prayed to the Lord Yahweh. So he's reflecting on the truth that God is his personal God. He, he has a covenant with them. He loves them. In fact, you see that at the end of verse 4, who keeps his covenant. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So God is a covenant-keeping God. What was the basis for Daniel to be confident that God heard him and that God would answer him? God had a covenant with him and God loved him. In fact, look down in chapter 9, verse 23. God confirms that to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. And we'll look at this more next week, but I want to point this out. This is very interesting. In Daniel 9, 23, Gabriel says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, speaking to Daniel, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, you Daniel, for you are greatly loved. Isn't that amazing to think about? You know what's amazing? God, through the angel Gabriel, told Daniel that he was greatly loved, and God loves us, his church. Isn't that amazing to think about? God loves us. And so he prayed in the confidence that God loved him. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, you know, many times we end our prayers with that in the name of Jesus, we're praying in the confidence of the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our 
Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Those aren't magical words, like in the name of Jesus. That's not, sometimes people treat it that way. You know, it's like they pray for something and like, okay, in the name of Jesus. And they, they think of it like, okay, if I say that, then it, you know, there's like fairy dust that comes on top of their prayers and it's all gonna happen. And sometimes people, I've, I've heard people say, you know, if I, if, if I just pray and just, you know, with faith and in the name of Jesus, you know, that person can be healed or I can be healed. A lot of people trick people on TV with that kind of idea. They treat God like some kind of wizard with magical spells. But that's not the idea of the name of God. To pray in the name of Jesus is to say, we believe, we believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. The only way that you can have access to be accepted by the Father, to be able to pray by the Father and have him respond to you, is through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray with confidence that God hears me because of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus represents his person and his work that brings us into this new covenant. And so the Bible says in John 14, 13, whatever, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. So we see in the Chapter 9, we see, I think it's eight times you see Yahweh used. And then 10 times in chapter 9, he addresses God as Adonai. You can see that in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God, there's Yahweh, to Yahweh my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, O Adonai, the great and awesome God. Again, Adonai is the idea that God is all-powerful. It's the word that means that God is the master. He's the supreme being. And both of these names, Adonai and Yahweh, are the basis for which Daniel prayed. I mean, think about it. How did, why did he think that God could hear his prayers? Because he had a relationship with him. He had a covenant with him. He was his Yahweh. Why did he think God could answer his prayers? He had the ability to. Well, he is, he's Adonai. He can do whatever he wants, right? He's the supreme being. If he wants to answer it in a particular way, he can because he is his Adonai, the great and awesome God. So prayer is humbly entering the presence of God in the confidence of the Lord's name. Then notice the, the response of prayer. It's responding in agreement with who God is and who we are and responding in faith to his word. So the response of prayer for Daniel was twofold. In verses 5 through 15, Daniel confessed his sin and the sin of Israel. So he uses the words we and us and our a lot. So he confessed his sin and the sin of the Jewish people. And then in verses 16 through 19, Daniel petitioned God for mercy, for forgiveness, for restoration. So the main body really of his prayer is, is 16 verses of confession for their sin. And really only four verses for petition. And both parts, both the part of confession and the part of petition are really just responses to God and his word. In confession, he responds to God in agreement about who God says he is and who God thinks Daniel is found in the scripture. And in petition, he is responding to God in request about what God promised them in the scripture. So first notice confession. Confession is agreeing with God about who he is and about who we are. Look at verse five. 
Daniel confesses, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel put his sin and the sin of Israel into really two categories. The first category was willful disobedience. Verse 5, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we have not obeyed your commands. So it's willful disobedience to God's laws. The second category is one of ignoring the word of God. Look at verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. That's the word of God. And so we've, we've disobeyed you. We've ignored you. Now those are... I'm sorry. Siri decided to interrupt me here. Probably should turn that off here. It's a reminder all of us need to turn off our phones. <laughs> well, going back to this. Those are distinct categories, right? So we, we disobeyed God, we ignored his word, but also they go hand in hand. You know, a parent can tell a child, I want you guys to you know, turn the TV off and go clean up the table. And the child might disobey them, might go and do their own thing. And the parent might remind them, hey, I told you to go turn the TV off. And, you know, and sometimes the kids pretend that they can't hear their parents. Has that ever happened to you parents in here, grandparents, like the kids... And so they, they disobey their parents, but also they ignore the word of their parents. And so they kind of go hand in hand. And a child should obey his parents because he loves his parents, right? We should, we should obey God because we love God. We don't obey God so we'll be loved by God. You know, if you have a biblical home, if you live in a biblical home, hopefully in that home, if it's a biblical home, then parents, you love your kids unconditionally. You love your children and, and children don't have to earn that love, right? We don't earn love from God. God has set his love on us. We're in a covenant relationship, so God loves us. Because God loves us, then we love him, and we love him by obeying him. And if a child ignores his parent, if he ignores the parent's word, not only is the child disobeying, but he's disregarding the voice, the word of that parent. And how, how a child, how a child treats the word of the parent, in other words, if a child's over there and they just ignore their parent, how they treat the voice or the, the word of the parent really reveals how that child views their parents, right? And if you're a child and you're over there watching TV and your mom's talking to you and you're thinking, I really want to watch the end of this. I don't really care what she's talking about. You're, you're thinking, maybe not as in-depth as I'm saying it, but you're thinking, I don't really care about you and what you're saying. All I care about is myself. In the same way, we treat God with that same type of contempt. Not only do we disobey him, but we disregard his word. And you can mark it down, how someone treats the word of God, how someone treats the word of God reveals how they view God. If God's word, if this word of God is it's just a book that you have in your house, if the preaching of God's word is just a duty that you come to every week, or it's like, is it that time again? If, if that's how we view God's word, then that's a very big tell of how far your heart is away from God. If you love God, you will love to obey God. 
You will love to listen to God's word and respond to him. So Daniel confessed here, the Jewish people, they lived in disobedience to God and they disregarded the word of God. So look at verse seven. Daniel contrasts God, the righteous God, to himself in Israel. Verse seven, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belong shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. And so you see him contrasting the righteousness of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God with their wickedness. When I was growing up, we would often hear, and we maybe would even say, don't be a tattletale. You know what a tattletale is? You know, there was usually a certain person in our house, I won't say her name out loud, but a certain person in our house, when she smelled mischief going on in the house, she was the one to run to the parent and to tell them that there was someone that was doing something wrong. Someone who tattles tells the sins of someone else, right? Do you know what never happens with a tattletale? They never tell them themselves. You ever recognize that? Like, no, no kid ever says, oh, mom, dad, uh, I pushed my brother in the other room. I just want you to know that. Like, like I didn't do all my math work because I wanted to go out and play. So why is that? Well, it's because we don't want to admit our sin, right? They never, tattletales never tell on themselves because nobody wants to confess their own sin. It's always easier to point out the sin of other people, isn't it? Right, it's always easier to go home from church and you're on your way home or maybe you're sitting around a table and you're like, can you believe what she wore today? Oh, that was terrible, you know? Did you see that guy falling asleep in front of us? Like he's nodding his head the whole time. Or can you believe what the pastor said today? Oh, what's wrong with him, you know? It's always easier to point out the, the problems of everyone else. Nobody on the way home goes, you know, I should have gone to bed earlier last night. I, I didn't pay attention like I should have because I, because I just was, you know, watching TV. I was being lazy last night. Or, I didn't really pay attention this morning. I wasn't focused on the word. I, I, I was so wrong for that. Or, I mean, I, I just, I disrespected the Lord by just coming late to church and just coming up whenever I wanted. Like, nobody does that, right? I shouldn't say nobody, but we rarely do that. Because tattletales don't tell on themselves, they tell on other people. But confession is basically being a tattletale on yourself, right? You're tattling on yourself to God. It's not as if God doesn't know about our sin. He knows more than we even know. But confessing our sins is responding in agreement with God about how he views himself and how he views us. And so notice how Daniel describes himself in the Jewish people. Daniel describes himself as the worst of the worst. Look in verse five. Look in verse five. I'm not gonna read through all these. I'm just gonna highlight some of the descriptions he gives of himself that he is, first of all, verse five, he is a sinner, he's wicked, he's a rebel, he's turned his back on God. 
Verse 6, he has not listened to God's word. He's, he shunned the word of God. Verse 7, he's shameful. The end of verse 7, he's a traitor. Verse 8, he's shameful. He's a sinner. Verse 9, he's a rebel. Verse 10, he's disobedient. Verse 11, he's a transgressor. He's stubborn. He's a sinner. Now, when you think of Daniel, do you think of those words to describe Daniel? Like, nobody writes songs about Daniel like that, right? I mean, it's dare to be a Daniel. Be like Daniel. No one ever says, you know, Daniel, be like Daniel, a wicked, traitorous, shameful sinner. We don't do that generally because we view people like this as good people. But apart from God's mercy, that's not actually how God viewed Daniel. Think about that. Apart from God's mercy and grace, that's not how God viewed. He did not view Daniel as a good person. God viewed him as a wicked, traitorous, shameful sinner. That was God's view of Daniel. And how did Daniel know that that was God's view? How did he know he was that bad? Because he knew how righteous God is. Notice how he compares God to himself. The more Daniel gazed upon the righteousness and goodness of God and the word of God, the clearer it became to Daniel that he was on the opposite end, that he was the sinner, he was the traitor, he was the rebel with all of Israel. And notice how Daniel viewed God in contrast to himself. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Daniel 9, 5. I'm sorry, Daniel 9, 4. He is Yahweh, he keeps his promises. He's Adonai, he's the supreme sovereign. Look at verse seven. He is righteous to you, belongs righteousness. Means he always does the right thing. Look at verse nine. He's the source of mercy and forgiveness. And we could go on and on. There's so many descriptions of God in this text here, in this prayer. There's so many different names for God in this text. We could... Look at all of them, but he viewed God as the righteous one, as the holy one, as the high and exalted one, and he viewed himself as the exact opposite. Now, why do you think that the majority of this prayer is a prayer of confession? 16 verses about how bad he is and Israel is. I mean, couldn't that just been one, one and then you just do the rest are petition? Only four verses for petition. Why is it the majority of this prayer is a prayer of confession? I think it's because Daniel knew how sinful he truly was. I mean, when we pray, think about it, when we pray, what's the majority of our prayers? You know, we have our lists or we have our ideas of what we want to pray for. And, and frankly, most of our prayers are prayers of petition, right? We think about all the things that we maybe want or maybe even the Lord wants in the scripture and we think about it that way. But I think the reason that we don't have the majority of our prayers be confession is because we really don't see the depth of our depravity. And I think when we don't see the depth of our depravity reveals we really don't know God as well as we think we do. And if I were to ask you, how do you view yourself? If I were to say, how do, how do you think you view yourself? How, how does God view you and how do you view yourself? Apart from the mercy and grace of God, how do you view yourself? And if you say, well, I'm, I think I'm basically a good person, then you don't know the holy God. The more you know God, the more you understand his righteousness, his holiness, the more you recognize your own deceptive 
sinful heart. But Daniel actually went a step further. Not only did he confess his sinfulness and agree with God about that, but he also agreed with God that he deserved the punishment for his sin. Right? A tattletale doesn't tattle on himself. He tattles on someone else. But definitely a tattletale doesn't openly confess his sin and invite punishment into his life, right? I mean, no 10-year-old boy goes in the other room and pushes his sister and is mad at her and then comes to his parents and says, you know, I really messed up, mom and dad. I pushed my sister. To go even farther than that, I deserve a really bad punishment. And uh, you got me for my birthday, the Lego Star Warriors, Lego Star War, Star Wars, there you go, Lego Star Wars Imperial Star Destroyer. That's hard to say. The Lego Star Wars Imperial Star Destroyer. There, you know what I'm talking about. Like the one that takes you hours to put together. Like no 10-year-old boy puts that together, does something to his sister and says, you know what, I'm such a bad person, I think you should just give this to my sister, right? Like maybe, maybe you should actually sell it and give it to someone else. Maybe donate it to Goodwill or something like that. That's not gonna happen, typically. <laughs> Why? Because most 10-year-old boys don't think they deserve that severe of a punishment. But notice how Daniel not only confesses his sin, he's like, we deserve what we got. We deserved a punishment for our sin. I, I agree with you, God. 70 years of punishment, we deserve that. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. Why? Because we have sinned against him. So Daniel says that we have been cursed by God. They were removed from the land. Some were killed. Think about it. This, is, this actually really happened. Some people were killed. They were removed from the land. Some people were kidnapped. Daniel was kidnapped. He hasn't tried to minimize their sin or, or sin or blame it on other people. He says the curse was poured out upon us. Look at the end of verse 11. Because we have sinned against him. We deserved it. We deserve the wrath of God upon us for our sin. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words. God said, if you sin, you'll be punished. And it's confirmed, God keeps his word. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth or the, the word of God. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done. Everything God has done is right. He's righteous and we are not. We have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. So Daniel agreed with God about their own sinful condition and the judgment they deserved. Before we can go to Christ 
for cleansing and for forgiveness, we first must recognize our sin and confess our sin to him. We must agree with him about our sin and we must agree with him about our just condemnation. We deserve separation from God. We deserve to go to hell for our sin. That's why Paul wrote 1 Timothy 1.5. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And who did Paul think about when he thought about sinners? Well, he says, of whom I am foremost. When Paul thought about himself, apart from the grace of God, apart from the mercy of God, when Paul thought about himself, he thought of himself as the worst sinner. Why? Because he truly knew the righteousness and holiness of God. So he confessed his treachery, his evil heart, his sinfulness. And he recognized that he is a sinner and deserved to be separated from God. But Paul also believed that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. This is why we believe in the scriptures that a person must come to Christ in repentance and faith. In repentance, we confess our sinfulness, our inability to save ourselves, and the right that we have to go to hell for our sin. We deserve that. But in faith, we turn and trust that only Jesus can save us. And only he has the right to rule our life as Lord. And so we surrender our lives to him. And so prayer, prayer is responding in confession in agreement with God about who he is and who we are. And then it's also petition. Verses 16 through 19, Daniel petitioned God. As with confession, petition is a response to God and to his word. We're not gonna read through this text again, but remember back to Daniel chapter two. Daniel said he prayed in response to reading the word of God by the prophet Jeremiah and God said, if you confess your sin and you seek the Lord with all your heart, then God will forgive and restore them to the land. So Daniel's petitions were requests that had to do what God had promised Israel. Sometimes people go to Jeremiah 29 or even texts like this right here and they try to apply it to places like America. And, and I think you gotta be careful about that because those promises were for Israel and for this particular time. God does have promises for us, his church, for us as believers in the word of God. So we should definitely look at those. But we recognize here what Daniel was doing was he was responding to God and to his word. And he was praying in faith according to the promises of God's word. When we pray, we're praying for God's will to be done. How do we know what God's will is? What's well, found in the word of God. Prayer is not a time for us to change the mind of God. Prayer is not a, a way to tell God how we think the world should be run. God is sovereign. You can't change God's mind. God is good, so we wouldn't want to change his mind. So prayer is not us telling God how we think things should be run, prayer is us looking in the word of God, seeing the things he has promised for us and for his church, and then 
praying those back to God, responding back to him and his, his word. And so you think about scriptures like this, Matthew 6, Jesus taught us to pray. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're praying. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we petition God, asking him, God, fulfill your word on earth, your will on earth according to your word. Or how about this one? 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. So when we pray, we pray in this confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And it's not just that he's listening to us, but it's actually he responds to us. This is a pretty popular one people like to think about. They think about prayer. Matthew 21, 22. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in yourself? Faith in your own ideas? No, it's, it's faith in his word. I've heard people use this verse and they say things like, you know, I'm, I'm praying for healing or I'm praying for this job or I'm praying I can get this car and I know I'm gonna get it because I'm praying in faith. Well, I think a good question to ask is, is there somewhere in the Bible where it actually says that you're gonna get that car? Or, or is, there, is there anywhere in the Bible where it promises you will be healed from that disease? Is there anywhere in the Bible where it promises that you're going to get that job? And the answer is, to all those is no. What has God promised? Well, God has promised to provide for you. So it, honestly, it might be through that job. So pray that God will provide that job for you. Don't demand of God to do what you think God should do. Definitely ask in confidence and ask God, please provide. And Lord, I, I would like this job. Please, would you give this to me? But if the Lord doesn't, we trust that God will provide in another way because he promises he will provide. God promises he will have mercy upon us. He loves us. Sometimes God answers that request by healing our bodies. Sometimes he doesn't. We don't make demands of God. We pray though in faith according to what God's word says about himself and what God promises us. And so we must look at God's word and we must respond with specific prayers in faith. I think about this time last year, the elders started just considering, you know, we're, we were still, I guess, meeting outside at this time. And we were kind of trying to decide the future of the church and some other things. And, and I, I can't remember what meeting or what happened, but at some point, I mentioned, I'm, I'm praying that God would allow us to bring someone that could oversee the entire Sunday morning service, like a discipleship minister, as I said, the Sunday morning gathering. I, might, I didn't say it that way because, but that's what I was thinking. And I, and I started praying for that. I've been praying actually, you know, for many things since I've come. And one of those is to have people like that at our church. But, but one of the things I was, started praying specifically last year was that God provide that type of person for us. And Josh was leading, he was doing a great job, and we, it was like, could we have someone else that could come in and just make it a, a fuller time of discipleship? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be awesome? But honestly, I mean, we were shut down. <laughs> we weren't. I mean, we were out meeting outside, but there, we didn't have this many people there. And in the future, we didn't know what it was going to look like. And, and, and honestly, I didn't think we could even ever get someone like that. And so in January, when God provided Jorge, that church was an answer to prayer. Like, I've heard people say things like, wow, that, that's really neat that God brought someone like that, you know, and that's great. But you know what's amazing? That God answered prayer. 
And when we prayed as elders, and when I prayed on myself, by myself, my prayer was, God, you love your church. You promised that you will care for your church. Would you care for us in this way? And isn't that amazing how God did that? So last week when we said something about in the members meeting, I clapped and stuff, and maybe I shouldn't have done that. But honestly, part of that comes from my heart of like, Praise God, he provides for us, right? And I, I, I believe that God answers prayer. We look at his word, we say, God, what do you love? What do you say? What do you pro- promise? We pray that in faith. We don't demand of God. We don't say, God, do what I say because I'm in charge now and I say it in the name of Jesus. That is blasphemous when people do that. It's terrible when people do that. That's wrong. No, we pray in humility but we pray in faith, responding to God in his word. John 15, 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So if you love God and you know God's words, they're in your heart, what will your requests be to God? God's will, what God loves, what God wants. I read an illustration of this principle, so I thought I'd kind of describe it for you here this morning. Someone described prayers like the mooring lines of a ship. In a harbor, you know, you have those big ships. You go to San Diego, you see those big ships come in. It's really cool to see. And on a ship, they throw their mooring lines to the docks, and they have the ship tied up to those big, like, mushroom-looking, like, I think they're called bollards. Is that what they're called? Bollards? And the mooring lines have an eye on the end of it and they hook to that bollard and the ship turns on its hydraulic pulleys and it pulls the mooring line and the ship is pulled closer and closer to the dock until it docks up to the ship, uh, to, the, to the dock there. When the mooring line is pulled by the ship, it doesn't, it doesn't move the bollards or the, or the docks. The bollards are, are firm, they're stable. The dock is permanent, like it's staying there. When the mooring lines are pulled in, the ship moves closer to the bollards of the dock. And the more secure the moorings are to the bollards, the safer the ship will be. And he used this to illustrate prayer. He says, the dock is like the firm certainty of God. It's not moving. It's not going anywhere. And those bollards are like the promises and the truths of God. And we are like the ships. We can easily drift away from God And so we are to throw the mooring lines of prayers and hook them on the promises of God. And our prayers must be attached securely to the promises of God. And when we pray, it's not that that God is moving to us, but that we are moving closer to him. And as we pray to God, we hook our prayers upon his word. And in doing so, our hearts are moved closer to him and to his will. And that's what you see here in Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter nine, verse 16. Daniel responds to God's word with faith. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, that's Jerusalem, your holy city, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your saint, of your servant, and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, 
Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. By my count, Daniel petitioned God 11 times in those verses. In verse 16, he asked God's wrath to be turned away. In verse 17, he asked God to listen to their prayers. In verse 18, he prayed that God would incline their ear, that he would open up his eyes, he would see their desolation. In other words, God would pay attention to what is taking place. In verse 19, he asked God to hear, to forgive, to pay attention, to act, to not delay. And notice again, notice again the names of God and the character of God. This is the basis for which he was praying to God. In verse 16, notice that God is righteous. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, that's the basis of his prayer. Let your answer and your wrath be turned away. Look at verse 18. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes See our desolations and the city which is called by your name. And then notice the gospel here. Here's the gospel right here in Daniel, as clear as you can possibly get. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. I love that last line in verse 18. We do not present our pleas because of our righteousness. We don't bring anything to the Lord a sinner's confession for sin and petition for forgiveness is not based upon anything that he does. No merit, no righteousness, nothing he does. There's, there's nothing that we bring to God. If you bring something to God and say, God, please forgive me, and here's, here's what I got for you, God, there's no forgiveness there. We come empty-handed to God and say, God, we have nothing to offer you but our sin, and you offer us mercy. We offer nothing for God's forgiveness. God offers us mercy. Look at, I don't know if I have it up here or not. I don't think I do. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The basis for forgiveness from God is the mercy of God. And then last, notice the motivation for prayer. It's responding through faith in his word while being motivated by his glory. Look at the very end of verse 17. He says, for your own sake, O Lord. Answer, listen, Lord, for your sake. Look at verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. Why? For your own sake. For your name. Sometimes when people pray, they, all they're thinking about is themselves, maybe their comfort and their happiness. But biblical prayers are not self-centered prayers. They're prayers centered on the glory of God. 
Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father might be glorified in the Son. In fact, when Jesus prayed in John 17, Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so our prayers must be motivated by the glory of God. So did God hear Daniel's prayer? Did God forgive him? Did God restore Israel? Did he show mercy to the Jews? And the answer is, yes, he did. While Daniel was praying this prayer, God told him the answer. Next week, we're going to study the rest of Daniel chapter 9. We're going to see God's answer to prayer to Daniel, and he does it through the mouth of, he communicates it through the mouth of Gabriel. It's pretty remarkable to think about that the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 is spoken about, and God reveals to Daniel the answer to his prayer, and that is the Messiah actually will come, and he will offer spiritual restoration to those who believe in his name. Let me conclude with this. When, when is your time, believer? When is your time of prayer? When is the time where you come into the presence of God? And when you do that, how do you enter into his presence? I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggle with all the distractions, the bells and the whistles and the dings and the calls. And how do you enter into his presence? When you pray, do you agree with God about the wickedness of your soul? Apart from God's mercy, apart from God's grace, do you see genuinely that you are a rebel, a traitor, that you have disobeyed God, you've ignored his word, and you confess that to God? And do you pray in faith, presenting God's word and the righteousness of Christ back to him? And are you motivated by the glory of God? Let's pray.